welcome to episode 173 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a business in bag making with my guest, Ellie Lum. Ellie is an accomplished creative entrepreneur, artist, and skill-building educator based out of Portland, Oregon. Ellie's passion lies at the intersection of education, art, creative business, and environmental justice. Along with her passion for creating, she's deeply committed to sharing her skills with those who want to learn. As a business owner of 20 years in a craftsman-based business, she has honed her skills as a leader and teacher instructing those who worked with her how to master the craft of industrial sewing, as well as small business management. She graduated from UC Berkeley with a BS in eco-literacy, where she studied adult hands-on learning theory and garden education. And for the past few years, she's been teaching sewing and mentoring folks on their creative business ventures through her DIY workshop and handmade goods brand, Clumhouse. Ellie Lam, welcome. Thanks, Abby. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So um, you have had such a fascinating sort of career journey, and I'd love to kind of start back in the beginning. I know you grew up in California, right near the beach, and um, I wondered what your parents did for work when you were young and kind of what your household was like. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, So my dad actually worked for um, the U.S. Postal Service, um, but he didn't actually raise us. My parents were divorced when I was three, so I was raised by my mom. Okay. And, and was it kind of a creative household? Because she was always really creative. Um, she was always working with her hands and she taught me how to hand sew at a really young age. She loved hand sewing. So I, I learned how to hand sew when I was like five years old. Um, and I did a lot of origami growing up, which she also taught me. And she was really into cooking. So I cooked with her too. Nice. Okay. And I know that you were like, as a teenager, pretty involved in kind of like the punk scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what that was like when you were growing up. Um, so I grew up in San Francisco in the mid to late 90s. And it was there was like a really thriving public art scene there. And there was actually a really thriving graffiti scene in San Francisco at the time. So I grew up really doing a lot of graffiti and like just like being out in the city and just being in the city amongst all these like really famous older artists and stuff. Yeah. And so that was kind of part of your formative kind of years. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And just going to being in high school in in San Francisco and also a lot of us that grew up in San Francisco, we were raised by our parents had lived there during the hippie era, you know, so a lot of our parents were hippies. So we were all raised by hippies and raised with like really open minds and adventurous spirits and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so um, was kind of making things by hand sort of part of the ethos of that as well? Like, um, sort of, I don't know, a kind of a, a radical idea of like, you know, being empowered by making things was that sort of part of that culture too? For sure. Like um, in punk culture, there's such a intersection with DIY culture and you really just have there's a strong ethic of um, being self-sustainable and just really being able to not rely on capitalism for all of your 
needs. So like learning how to like make your own food, grow your own food, make your own clothing and fix your own bicycle and stuff like that. Right. And so that kind of entered into your consciousness at that time too, I feel like. Um, yeah. Okay. And so, um, so I know you, you became a bike messenger. Um, and I don't know how many women were doing that. Were there a lot of other women bike messengers? There wasn't actually, there was a few women that were bike messengers, um, in Philadelphia at the time where I was messaging. So I left home when I was 16, um, and actually used to ride freight trains, um, which was part of punk culture and rode freight trains out to the East coast and up the East coast and ended up landing in Philadelphia in 1997, I think it was, um, and lived in a couple squats in West Philly and ended up becoming a bike messenger, um, right around the time when I started reload bags. Okay. So, um, so that's pretty, uh, you know, interesting work. And I, and I, but not everybody who becomes a bike messenger starts a bag company. Um, most people, I guess, probably don't start a bag company. Um, so what was it about being a bike messenger that made you decide that, um, you know, the bags that everybody who was doing that work were carrying sort of weren't maybe good enough or could be improved upon? Yeah. Um, one of my good friends, Roland Burns, who I started the company with at the time, um, was a bike mechanic and I would go into his bike mechanic shop and we just became friends and he was starting a company at the time engineering, uh, bicycle parts. He had just graduated from Drexel university for engineering and was starting that company. Um, but like sort of pivoted his business um, aspirations and ended up starting reload bags with me. And part of that was because both of us were bike messengers and we were um, getting a lot of, I was getting a lot of requests from folks that were friends to fix their bags because they were breaking. And since we were messengers, we were able to like test our own equipment and we just started making bags for our friends and for ourselves. And more and more people were asking us to do it. And since my mom had taught me how to sew, um, that was just a skill that I had used sort of my whole life. So um, it was a really natural progression as it was a need in the culture at the time. And Roland wanted to start a business anyway. So I thought, well, I'll be the stitcher and the designer and he'll run the business end. But then we sort of ended up both doing both things too. And did you find that you liked the entrepreneur side of it? Was that like an untapped part of your brain that was interesting to you? Yeah, so I definitely loved it. Um, and I had actually already been selling things that I was making when I was like in fifth grade. I made a lot of friendship bracelets and I was really into it. And my mom, you know, she thought they were really good. And so she had me walk them around town to some local surf shops and ended up selling them to some surf shops, uh, even when I was, you know, at that age. So I was getting paid to sell my crafts at a very young age anyways. Right. So it was it was there. And sometimes these things are there and we don't necessarily recognize them until later. And then we look back and say, oh, yeah, actually, I have always liked doing this. Um, interesting. Okay. So you ended up starting this business and um, it really, it sounds like it really grew into like an industrial sewing shop. Um, yeah. So we ended up, because we were making really durable bags that had to stand up to like the East coast winters and, you know, 
there were working bags that we had to wear all day, every day. Um, we definitely needed industrial sewing machines to make those because we were using Cordura and vinyl coated nylon and all of these like more industrial thick fabrics. Right. Okay. And so um, when um, the shop was sort of at its height, can you describe kind of what that business really looked like? Like what um, kind of the, it was almost like a, like a factory really, right? And so, and and how many kind of employees you had and, and what it, what kind of um, production you were, you were actually doing when it was really kind of pumping along? Yeah. So Reload, um, we ran it in Philadelphia only for till like the early 2000s. And then I wanted to move back to the West Coast. And I ended up moving to Seattle, um, actually up and down the West Coast for a few years, but landed in Seattle and opened a West Coast branch of Reload. Um, So Reload had like a small batch in-house factory in Philadelphia that was probably maybe five to eight people. And then when I got the full like in-house factory up and running in Seattle, I had about the same amount, maybe 10 people in there and all the bags are made to order and they're all custom made. So we, um, every stitcher really did, you know, make the bag start to finish more or less. Okay. Right. Um, and then what were some of the, I guess, some of the frustrations that you started to encounter, um, with that business as it was sort of getting to um, to the point where when you were were ready to sort of move on from it? Um, one of the main things that was always hard for me to deal with was really trying to run it in a way that was environmentally sustainable. Um, and also just running a like small batch USA, company at in the late 90s to early and mid 2000s was really the beginning of sort of what now is like the makers renaissance where there's a lot of small batch making happening by makers in the US but at the time there wasn't a lot of resources and we really didn't feel like we had a lot of support um like for instance a lot of our suppliers and this is actually still true like a lot of the mills were closing down in the US so all over the years it became harder and harder to source things and harder to source them in a way where we felt like they were being produced um in a way that was environmentally sustainable too right Okay. But you, it sounds like you really enjoyed working with the stitchers who were um, actually creating these custom bags for, for reload bags and, and sort of working with them was inspiring to you. It was, yeah, it was really inspiring to, cause most people didn't come to, uh, to work with us. They didn't come from a sewing factory background cause we don't actually have, or at the time, we didn't have as many sewing factories in the U.S. in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and still, that's just not a really common, I, I mean, as you know, most things are made outside of this country or sewn, usually in Asia. Um, so I ended up training a lot of stitchers to sew, to work on industrial equipment and do industrial sewing, which is where I really found my love for teaching. Right. Okay. Right. And so, um, had you ever considered being a teacher, um, up until that point? Like, you know, when I, I have a master's degree in education and I had always wanted to be a teacher when I was little, um, was that something that you had dreamed of as well? No, actually I used to, I always wanted to be an architect when I was little. Oh, Um, interesting. Yeah. Which I feel like it, it, yeah, there's a lot of similar things. There is. Yeah. 
and teaching. Yeah. So that is where I really fell in love with teaching. Definitely. Yeah. It's been working with them. And so, and so did you end up um, selling that business or did you end up closing it or, or what was its eventual fate? So the West Coast branch in Seattle was the branch that I managed. Um, and I ended up closing that branch in order to just uh, reassess what I wh- what direction I wanted to go with my career. But that actually ended up being about six months before the 2008 stock market crash. Oh, wow. Impressions. So yeah. Funny timing. And I was um, closing that branch down. And I was headed back to the East Coast to like reconvene with Roland about sort of the direction of the company and where we wanted to grow it to and stuff. Um, but then, of course, the 2008 crash happened and we totally had to restructure the company anyways. Okay. And so did he end up hanging on to the other piece of it or the East Coast piece of it? Or did he ended up deciding to close that piece as well? Yeah. So he still runs oh, the- he does. Yeah, he still runs Reload, um, and it he just ended up having a lot smaller of a crew okay, and, and running it in a different way for him that worked better for him and didn't require as much management of a bunch of people and stuff. Okay, great. And so, and then you went back to school. Is that, did, is that was that like the right, the next move, like directly after? I did, yeah. So I had never gone to college originally because um, uh, I had started Reload when I was like 17. Right. And so this was your opportunity. And it's funny because I often think like education is wasted on the young. Um, and sometimes, you know, you go to college straight from high school and it's like you don't even really have any life experience and you don't know what you want to know. And sometimes, especially between, um, for me, at least between college and graduate school, I was really grateful that I took two years off and did teach for America and just got out into the world a little bit. And so when I came to graduate school, I actually knew what I wanted to learn. Um, but anyway, you decided that you knew, I feel like you really knew what you wanted to learn when you finally did go to school. Yeah, well, it was funny, because when I originally decided to go to school, I was actually thinking about becoming an acupuncturist and I um, just wanted to do something that really helped people and where I could really connect with people's own ability to heal themselves. And um, I ended up not really feeling as drawn in that direction after I took an environmental studies class at City College in San Francisco and really started getting into um, like ecology and yeah. And then I started getting a little bit more into sustainability and education um, during that class, too, because it was a lot of hands-on work with the community. Okay. And so what did you end up kind of, I guess, focusing on or, or majoring in um, when it was all kind of said and done? Yeah. So I started at City College and then I transferred to UC Berkeley and um, into a design-your-own-major in the um, – College of Natural Resources, which, which was going to be like a science bachelor's degree. And the design your own major really took, you were able to take three different uh, genres of what you wanted to study, three different disciplines, and put them together and make up your own um, name, essentially, for what your major is. So I knew I wanted to come in with like a sustainability ecology, and I knew I wanted to also come in with this arts entrepreneurship aspect of where I had come from with Reload. And then I also kind of did some deep digging in the 
first semester as they the first semester there we write our major so we have a whole class that helps us write our major and I, I realized through a lot of um, just self-reflection that I really liked the role as teacher and educator and that I really liked empowering people and helping people build confidence and that I knew I with all of my history of um making stuff that I was really interested in how people learn with their bodies. And I knew I wanted to work with adults. So I ended up designing a major called integrative eco-literacy, which essentially looks at like, how do we learn in a kinetic way about um, ecology and become more literate with it? That is so cool. What a neat way to focus on the things that you actually really want to know and need to know in order to be able to build the business and the life that you want. Um, I just think that, again, like it's so neat to be able to to sort of experience life first before deciding what you want to study. Um, and uh, and so that that's great. Um, okay, so when you came out of school, um, then did you decide right away to build Clumhouse or was there an intermediate step? Um, so I, the right after school, I ended up having a um, scholarship to do a environmental justice project with a colleague from that I graduated with Josh Arnold. And we designed a project to do some soil testing um, urban agriculture, environmental justice work in Richmond, California, around um, working with how the soils of people's uh, backyard gardens had been affected by the Chevron oil refinery fires and how the contamination, if there was a lot of contamination in the soil, how that interacted with people's ability to do their subsistence urban agriculture farming. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and what what were the results of that? I'm just curious what the results were well, of that. And that um, project had another leg to it where there was um, an oral history component where I was really researching and looking at how people value the land and how um, their like connection to the land is like what that looks like through their history and stories too. Oh, wow. I love, I mean, obviously I love interviewing people and talking to people. So that must have been really cool and and like a neat opportunity to get people's stories. It um, was. I really did a lot of oral history training. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I would have when loved I was in college. And I and we did a lot of that work was around, <clears throat> yeah, environmental justice work and really looking at a lot of environmental justice scenarios and how that affects people through their lived experiences of living through those times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And so after that experience, then it was, that was Clumhouse the next step or. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember. Um, so I, like I said, had ran reload. And when I closed my production studios down, like I almost closed them down in certain increments where I had closed the larger factory, but then I still was making bags just in my home studio for folks and had slowly stopped doing that. Well, and also my partner, um, Dustin, who's now my husband, but at the time we were um, not married, we, he used to run a, um, a cycling clothing company called Cadence, and he had stopped doing his in-house manufacturing. So we both were left with all of these like <clears throat> raw materials that we didn't 
manufacture with anymore, but we still had them. So we decided to collaborate on the designs and design some bags and uh, accessories. And that was originally what Clumhouse was. Oh, I see. Okay. So it was kind of almost like an artistic collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And, and but I, it sounds like you really wanted to also teach. Yeah. So Clumhouse originally is my husband's last name, which is Klein, and then my last name, which is Lum. And we kind of put those two words together oh. and made the Lum. Yeah. So that's where the name came from. Yeah. And then he ended up getting getting a job, like just basically getting work, full-time work that pulled him away from that project. Um, and so then I took over Clumhouse as a project and realized that it would be really fun to teach people sewing that that was, and I had actually been teaching sewing at a DIY school in San Francisco called Workshop SF. It's actually one of the like first DIY workshop craft schools in the country in this like new format where it's like one day workshops type stuff. Okay. And so you wanted to open your space up and did you have an outside space or was this actually in part of your home? It was in part of my home. Um, so then we, since I had graduated and I was done with my research project, we um, decided we wanted to move to Portland, Oregon. And I knew when we moved to Portland that I would start like really focusing on Clumhouse. And my, my first thing was to open my sewing workshop school just in the basement of the house that we ended up buying when we moved to Portland. I see. So that's when Clumhouse really you know, became the iteration that it is now. Right. And I feel like you have um, really a feeling or like a theory that um, that I've seen you express elsewhere around sort of that feeling of power that it gives to people when they understand that they can make something. And I wondered if you talk a little bit about that theory. Um, you know, like in modern day society, so often if we want something, we just go buy it. And mm-hmm. um and that kind of, I don't know, lack of power that comes with that where it's like, oh, I need something, I have to go buy it versus I need something and I can make it and I can, you know, take an hour, two hours, three hours, I can learn a skill, I can create this thing with my hands and what comes from that, what feeling comes from that um, and how that transforms somebody sort of psychologically um, from that experience. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, well, I think a lot of that comes back to like my punk DIY roots where I really do believe that capitalism at its core is about us giving our power away. I think that a lot of the systems and structures that are happening in that there, there's essentially like we are told to buy everything that we need. And instead of really interacting with its um, creation process, right? But as makers, we inevitably disrupt that because we're interacting with the creation process of objects or things that we use in our everyday lives. You know, so I think that um, if we we're sort of used to saying, oh, well, let an expert make that or do that and I'll just buy, I'll pay them for their time and buy that, which is, you know, great sometimes. But what we ended up losing is this ability to critically think through like how things actually happen, how things get made. Right. So making things and especially sewing is a series of gathering materials and putting them together to the point where you put them together enough that you have this functional, useful end product. And I think you can take those same concepts and really start to believe in yourself in this ability to 
put things together and make things real in the world and you physically do that with your body as you create and sew something that you sort of learn those concepts and your belief in yourself to do that through these projects. And as a maker myself, I can tell you like that high that you get, that feeling of accomplishment is really unbeatable. You know, when you um, learn to, you know, carve a spoon or, um, you know, make a shirt or whatever it might be and, and then be able to use it. It's just this incredible feeling. Yeah, it's really like the power of this manifestation of like this, you know, intangible ideas and things that seem like they don't work together. Then all of a sudden you are part of this process of bringing that to life. Yeah. And um, yeah. it's addictive. I mean, you just want to, you know, you, you just want to be able to figure it out. And, and, and it does extend into other things. Like if, you know, I'm a baker and I like to cook and, and extend, it extends there, but, you know, into playing music and uh, lots of areas of life into growing things in your garden. I mean, it, it can into fixing things that are broken and lots of areas. But if you can do them yourself, that feeling is, is just unbeatable. So. Yeah. And it's also just like a base human impulse like the create just creating you know so I think that there's this like really fulfillment aspect of it that I think people do get you know that's really holistic yeah yeah I do even that efficacy that gets built um, as you build confidence in in your own skills yeah absolutely and so I feel like that kind of undergirds maybe some of the the sort of the theory behind what you're working to do um, in your business um, so um, I think that's really cool and um, and and I would love if you if you could talk a little bit about sort of adult learners um, because a lot of us who are craft um, crafters and craft craft based businesses are also teachers and you know we are um, teaching adults and but a lot of us maybe haven't studied necessarily adult education um, and so it's interesting to think through like what are some of the things that adult learners need or come to the table with that need to be overcome and I feel like you've put a lot of thought um, into into some of that maybe more so than others so um, do you have some I some some tips or recommendations or, or things that you've experienced that um, you could help others who are teaching adults um, think about? Yeah. Well, I definitely know that adult um, learners love when teachers are organized. That's like a really big thing. Um, one of the things is I try to think about where the adult learners are coming from. And generally, they're coming from a pretty busy life. And they have like decided that it's, you know, really important for them to spend some time making and to put aside some time that is uninterrupted, except for their teacher and classmates or whatever to, to um, interact with their creative process, whatever that, however that manifests, whether it's through sewing, knitting, embroidery, or spoon carving or whatever, you know. So I really like, think that that's a base Thing that I step into as I step into a teacher role is to know like these people only have a certain amount of time and I don't want to waste their time right and so one of the things that people really want is this sacred time to create where they get this permission where they've like paid for this teacher to help set the stage and create the supportive container for them to really get lost in the making process or have the support they need to learn that skill too. So I think there's a bigger picture thing. And, and for me, I'm just really grateful that someone chose to spend their precious time 
with me and they're sharing this passion of bag making with me. So I think that that's part of it. The other part of it is that adult learners really need to understand why you're asking them to do something. You know, most people that come to our craft classes, they're probably experts in their life on at something. They've mm-hmm. spent their whole lives becoming really, really good at what they do. So for someone that's an adult to humble themselves enough to come in and learn a new skill, um, that's already taking a lot of courage on that learner's part to say, I'm going to find, I'm going to be in like a kid mind state again, and I'm going to trust this teacher to walk me through this process. They're giving away a lot of, they're, they're giving a lot of trust in that. And so I think that adults have this capacity to really connect like bigger concepts into what they're doing in these small ways too. So one of my teaching techniques is really to explain the why as I ask people and tell them to do something. And so as they learn that, they're learning how to critically think through how does someone with a lot of experience in this craft make these problem-solving decisions to create this object. So I, I teach people how to problem solve through the creation process, not just what to do next. And how do you combat perfectionism? Because I think that that, in my experience, teaching adults crafting can be a big stumbling block where somebody sews a seam and the seam isn't perfect. They want to go back and fix that seam. And then they have a lot of trouble making progress through the project. Um, And I try to explain like you're a novice and it's okay that the first iteration of this project isn't going to be perfect, but you're learning the skills and they still have trouble keeping going. Yeah, some people do. um, You know, I think sometimes what I'll say in the beginning of class is like, let's set some intentions. And a lot of times uh, there's a question that I post to people like, is your intention really to walk away with a perfect object or did you take this class to learn a skill or to dive deeper into the culture or world of this particular craft? Mm -hmm. So there's a certain amount of, of knowing where you're at with that too, you know, and some people did really think, Oh, I actually did want to sign up for this class because I was hoping to make the perfect project. And most often though, people realize that's not the case for themselves. Right. And if they can sort of acknowledge that right from the start, then when it's imperfect, they can see it and keep and remember that and keep going. I think that's a great tip. Yeah. And I also think, too, that um, essentially you get more out of a class or an educational experience if you actually make a mistake because you actually remember it a little bit more. You have more interaction with that particular thing that you made the mistake on. Um, So I think that's always interesting to point out is like, when you make a mistake, you actually learn that thing like a lot more deeply, you know, so if you do have an education goal, which generally people do when they're in a class, then they're going to have a deeper, richer, more in depth experience of the class, I think, if there are mistakes that are made, right? Great. That's really, really helpful. And you've done some online teaching. I watched um, some of your Skillshare um, classes, and they're really um, beautifully produced and um, like very professionally produced. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that process. 
Um, so it's all, it was just an evolution, I think, um, and finding the right production crew to work with. And um, I also have filmed a few craftsy blueprint classes. Okay, I know yeah. it's not around anymore. Right. Um, so that helps me um, understand what that production level is like. But I actually just, I think I just work with really talented people. Um, my The producer that I usually work with, she used to produce craftsy classes too. And she's just a good, good friend of mine. Okay. Um, my videographer is just really amazing at what he does too, you know, and, um, generally my crew is, is pretty organized. Um, and we like to tackle projects like with like just a lot of collaboration and passion. And I think that just shows through with a lot of the stuff that, that Clumhouse produces. And have you felt that it has been, I mean, first teaching online is a very different experience than teaching in person, obviously, cause you're, you know, the, the students aren't right there. Um, so have you, have you felt that to be satisfying to do and was it financially worthwhile? Um, it's definitely not financially worthwhile, <laughs> but I think that it's still really fun. Um, I try to put myself in the student's shoes regardless of if I can see them in front of me or not. And I also try to just stay really critical of the whole um, sequence of construction of anything that I'm making. And and I've actually just seen enough students in person struggle through certain aspects of the patterns that I designed. So I like know when there's going to be a moment where someone might do something um, not entirely right. So I'll kind of like try to remember that and call that out, even though the person's not right in front of me, I can imagine that student doing that. And one thing for me with sewing and teaching is I try to get into as many details as I can without giving details that are irrelevant in the moment. Right. So and I, I think, I think, yeah, I think having so much in-person teaching experience really, really helps when you're teaching online because you don't have that feedback. Um, so you have to just know what people are going to struggle with and be able to anticipate it so that you can slow down those steps and really explain them well. And so um, somebody who's got years of experience is really the right person to teach online. Yeah, and teaching tends to be a lot of repetition, right? Like, as you know, we don't say things just once. We say them multiple times, and then we check in five or ten minutes later to see if people actually did it, you know? And there are certain teaching techniques, I mean, right? Like, I'll do, like, a call and response with people, too, and I'll, like, sort of try and make up things that are easy to remember, right? you know? And so, and I'll also just try to think of my own mistakes, too. Yeah. And, like, I would do and what because with making stuff too it really is about the details like if someone tells you to do a hem that's not enough information right so you can't just be like oh just do a hem like you have to tell someone like you know how big is the hem which direction does the hem fold does the fabric fold twice or once should I press it you know so if you don't take the time to slow down and give those details then someone that's trying to make it isn't going to know what to do. 
Right. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, totally. And and there's so many things about in-person teaching, you, you know, just gauging pe- people's facial expressions that, that's mm-hmm. lost. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And so today, can you just describe, obviously pre-pandemic, but um, kind of describe, we, we kind of stopped right when you were talking about um, Clumhouse being in your basement. Um, and so can you describe what it actually looked like pre-pandemic, um, what offerings you had, where um, the space is now, and sort of, um, yeah, just kind of give us an over an overview of what the business is, is today. Yeah, so pre-pandemic, we were in, and we still are in like a semi-public, because um, it's like sort of in a corridor of a commercial building studio space that's really beautiful. It's like split level with a skylight and has like a loft and stuff. Um, and I was running in-person workshops out of that every weekend and sometimes on weeknights um, teaching all of our own patterns. So Clumhouse really is organized around our core pattern line, which is our collection of bags. And those bags are um, sold in a variety of different ways, including as full kits or as partial kits where we only sell you the leather and the hardware or as just the pattern or as a pattern PDF. So a maker can come in at any point and kind of do whatever part of that they want to do. And then um, because I have a huge education commitment, we also teach those patterns and sell those kits as in-person classes. And then we started trying to record all of those as online classes. So Clumhouse is almost not even five years old, really. Um, So we're still in this really building out our collection and our offerings phase. And we were doing a lot of that last year. Um, There was a lot of momentum for that and building out our online and website sales stuff, which luckily we had started doing before the pandemic hit. Right. And I love the idea that you have so many entry points for each pattern. So it's like a PDF and then it's a kit where you just have the supplies or they're pre-cut, you know. So um and then there's a, a class, an in-person class or an online class. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the decision to offer um, the kits in so many different sort of forms so that um, there's all of these different entry points. Yeah. And that definitely comes back to education too. Um, and really how do we scaffold and support people through their making process and and knowing that it is adults with not a ton of time. So if someone wanted to make this bag and they only had three or four hours in the week, if they bought the full kit, they'd be able to shave off a ton of time from the making process. Um, so that's in there too. Um, when we, when I first started teaching in-person classes in order to make my classes not too long, cause as you know, people start just glazing over and <laughs> their brain capacity is done, you know, by, you know, a few hours, like you can't have a eight, 10 yeah. hour. So, you know, you just can't. So in order for me to get people to make these more complex bags in a one day workshop, I was, I was cutting and prepping the kits for people so that they could come in and just start sewing. And that was also a way for me to have more people in the class and not take up so much space. Cause as you know, cutting takes a lot more space than just sitting on your machine and making. So the kits, the full kits were really one of the original offerings. And as we started building out on like our online sales and stuff, then the kits became their own product. 
I see. Yeah. And I, you know, I think um, one of the things I often talk about is that people, you know, they buy a pattern or a kit really because they want to be creative. Um, but they, when they don't have a lot of time or, you know, they, they want, um, they want the exact supplies, you know, they want the, they want to be told exactly what to do and with the exact supplies that are pictured on the cover. And, um, and so it, it's like, um, relaxing to them to be able to have all the, all the things that they need. Um, and, and, you know, so. Yeah, for us, it really is. You're, you're right there. It really is about supporting the maker or the person that is bag making the bag maker in our case at wherever they're at, you know, like I think for me, and that's really a big part of education for me is how can I support someone to really be in interact with bag making at what, wherever they're at with whatever resources they have. Right. And I know that, um, am I right in saying that you've been doing some community outreach as far as just teaching, um, people to sew just more generally in the community? Is that something that you're also thinking about doing? Yeah. So we do that. Um, when the pandemic hit really hard in March, um, we made our sewing 101 online class just free. So it used to be, you know, you used to have to pay for it. And so now it's just free. So what that is, is like a really in-depth base class about how the sewing machine functions. And I even teach people like how it was designed to work and what the core like conceptual elements of how it works so that they could troubleshoot anything that they're sewing. Oh, that's great. It really is like sort of in this vein of how I teach. And so that was really timely because of course everyone started making masks. So a lot of people that were interested in sewing dusted off their machines and were able to take that free class. And then we also made a free mask class too, which there's a ton of mask tutorials, but yeah, so I feel like that there's just this commitment to build like base sewing knowledge in the community by just making those a lot of free content and like tutorials on our YouTube channel and on our um, online class portal. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I'll link try to link to that in the show notes as well. And yeah, I did watch your mask um, tutorial too, um, making a mask out of a t-shirt, um, which is great. And um, I'm really hopeful that through this pandemic and this experience of people really seeing that sewing is a life skill, um, that maybe HOMAC will return, which is where I learned how to sew um, to school curriculums. I, I'm hopeful. I'm not sure that will happen, but I hope it might. Um, if anything's going to push it to happen, I feel like this was it. It. So, um, you know, we'll see. Um, and how many employees does Clumhouse have or had before this um, pandemic hit? Oh, you know, we didn't have, we probably had like a four person crew. Okay. And now we're, now we're half that. Right. Okay. And do you, yeah. do you still kind of enjoy the business side of things? Is that still part of, I mean, once you have a business of, you know, of of size, running the business part of it does end up taking a significant portion of your time, you know, sometimes more than designing and and sometimes even more than doing the teaching. Um, And so I just wondered how you're feeling about that part of it. Yeah, that's a good question, Abby. It's, I, well, I feel like business is my art you know, it's my sometimes I feel that way too. You know, um, it's really for me creatively problem solving yeah. and you know managing the team and and really um, making sure our visions are all aligned and we feel passionate and motivated about the work that we do. And 
about how we share with the world through the brand and stuff, you know. Um, so that's always there, but it's just been such a crazy time with the pandemic, like having to pivot so quickly. And also the mourning of these parts of the company and the people that I lost in the team and just really feeling like I didn't have much choice around any of that. Um, and, and also really fighting for the survival and thriving of the company amidst, um, you know, what's going on in the world too. So it's definitely tiring, but I do think that one of the things that keeps me going and keeps me brainstorming and coming up with new things is that I am still able to provide jobs. And to me, that feels really important right now, even though it's not as many jobs as I wish I could provide. Um, And I think like I have a commitment to the people that I am responsible for employing to continue to keep that going because it feels to me really important. Yeah. And so do you think that, you know, you you do run small in-person classes, it sounds like, but I mean, I don't know if you have any prediction about when that might return. You know, we kept thinking we could, up until uh, like a few weeks ago, we kept thinking that we would be able to bring them back. And I even had them on my schedule, scheduled out through July, August, September. And I had to just come to terms with the fact that there, that just wasn't going to be possible in a way that felt safe to me. Yeah. Safe to me and for the people attending. And, uh, I actually ended up having to just refund everyone, which was a huge blow to, you know, I was like, what is it going to look like for me? Cause I get so much joy out of teaching and in-person classes, but I also just felt like I was stringing everyone along with, you know, and it's just was like, you know what, let's just stop for now, give refunds and say, you know, may, we'll just watch closely and know that when it feels safe, we'll bring things back because our studio is really small too. like we we're not able to really spread out in a way that feels like I would have be having integrity with the situation, you know, right, right. Yeah, unless you could somehow teach outside in a tent or I mean it's so yeah it's so hard yeah and I feel for you this I mean in-person classes and events it's really the hardest um the hardest piece yeah yeah we had other you know we had team building events and yeah shows that we were gonna do yeah Yeah. so we've had to really just try and focus on building the website right you know, and do and you do you too. do you do wholesale at all, or do you? Um, I mean, do you sell Clubhouse patterns? Are they available at other retailers, or are you just doing direct to consumer through through you? So we do do wholesale, but honestly, um, those orders have stopped too, more or less. Wow, there is a lot of wholesale um, orders coming in, and so we're trying to develop like a small batch makers like bulk buy program. To sort of like, because um, I know there's a lot of bag makers out there that are looking to source stuff and they don't necessarily want to open these huge wholesale accounts where the minimum to buy, you know, a buckles is $5,000 or something, you know. Right. Which, so I'm, we're trying to kind of help people get there and that might be like a sort of a newer version. But yeah, I feel like that revenue stream really um, slowed down a lot. Mm-hmm. The yeah, and a lot of store sewing shops have not been able to operate at full capacity or even be open, you know. Right. 
Yeah, gosh, this has been such a hard period. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, well, I, you know, it, it is good that you have the website there. And um, is your website built on Shopify? It's not built on Shopify yet, but we are building a Shopify site. Okay. Yeah. And why why are you making that shift? Um, I think that Shopify was just set up as an e-commerce um, yeah, platform. And so I think that we would be able to just do justice to a lot of stuff like the returns and the, the calculated shipping and the way that discounts are done. And we would just have a lot of like back end, like functional support mm-hmm. through Shopify. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like it's a really premier platform. So, um, mm-hmm. cool. Um, I think that that's probably a good move. Um, and you're not on Etsy. We are actually are on Etsy, you are. but we are not, we don't do a lot on Etsy cause we have such a robust website of our own, but we still do have, we have stuff on Etsy and we're actually going to add more stuff to Etsy. We're trying to focus our Etsy shop into like more bulk materials and PDF patterns and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because Etsy is sort of one of those things where it's like, why not? You know, like once you have the yeah. listing, why not put it there? It's not any extra work. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. And I feel like a lot of people can find us through Etsy too, which is cool. And those are the people that would shop our site anyways. Yeah, I feel like it's a good lead generator, you know, so people do a search, they find it, they come in, they get it. it um, once they get it, then they might go directly to you for the next purchase. Exactly. Yeah, that's how I always look at Etsy too. Um, well, Ellie, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you spending the time talking with us and telling me your story and sharing um, your expertise, especially around adult education too. Those tips were fantastic. Yeah, thank you. It's been really fun talking to you too. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the uh, Craft Industry Alliance podcast. Um, I'm Abby Glassenberg, and Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you grow your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.